Okay, I'm really excited about uh, really these next two messages um, in our series uh, because we are um, going to unpack one of the kind of most heavily contested articles of the Apostles' Creed. Um, okay, I made it better, but not all the way. Now it's bugging me. Maybe this is my way of saying good morning, OFAM. I forgot to say good morning, OFAM. I see you guys out there. There's a bunch of you online. Um, I hope you all are starting to feel better. Uh, I know we've had a lot of sickness kind of moving through our crew, so um, jump in and say hello um, if you're out there. I see a bunch of you out there. Got people all over the po- all over the place. Um, but this is one of the most heavily contested articles in the creed. And uh, and oh, by the way, uh, you guys need to text everybody that didn't show up. I mean, I don't know how in the world we plan to win today if people don't come to church first. Like you got to come to church, get God on your side, and then you know. Um, so yeah, I'm in New Jersey one last time. Um, by the way, many years from now, when I retire and a new pastor takes this spot, um, I expect you to retire my number. He can't um, he can't come wearing this number. So. Uh, <laughs> Let's get back down track here. Um, if you've gone to church here for long, you know that I don't um, shy away from tension. I love tension. I love uh, um, the topics that can tend to be volatile because I don't see why we can't talk about them together. Um, even when we disagree, um, I don't understand why we can't um, disagree together. So we're going to kind of dive in head first into uh, the third article of the Creed, um, which talks about the third member of the Godhead. Uh, I have asthma, um, which is uh, a bummer for um, for the most part, but it hasn't held me back much. I was athletic growing up. I played every sport possible, whether I could breathe or not. Um, and despite uh, basically spending my entire life with breathing issues, I've done pretty much everything. Like It, it hasn't really slowed me down much. Um, in fact, some of my earliest stories that my mom's told me about when I was a baby um, were about me basically forgetting how to breathe and turning all the way blue and her husband to rush me to the hospital um, so they could like jumpstart me um, and then send me home again, which I'm sure my mom was 20 and a brand new mom. I'm sure that was super exciting to bring me home from the ER and lay me in a bed and hope that I would remember how to breathe this time. But um, but uh, yeah, so I uh, and my mom always did that thing, that thing that moms do that, you know, I hope you have a kid just like you, you know. Um, yeah, so I think she kind of cursed me a little bit. But. Um, I spent the majority of my senior football year with walking pneumonia because I had scouts at every game and I couldn't afford to take a, a week off to, to get better. So I just hacked and coughed and slept sitting up every night. And it was, you know, it's what you have to do. Um, but as an adult, uh, you know, ready to kind of leave the dating world and start a real life, I did the smart thing for the future of my kids. And I married a woman who also had asthma her entire life. Um, my poor kids, they don't stand a chance. Um, but it's like, uh, it's like we didn't want them to breathe at all. But, um, but needless to say, breathing is one of the things that, uh, most people take for granted. Um, but it's always been a kind of a big deal in my house. Uh, I, uh, colds and flus hit us a little differently. In fact, two weeks ago, I got the normal little kind of head and, and chest bug that's going around and, it knocked me out. I was in really, really bad shape. Um, my O2 sats were in the toilet, and I had to, like, fight my wife off with a stick to keep her from dragging me into the hospital. It was pretty rough. Um, but I was thinking about this kind of often overlooked blessing of breathing um, this week, and I realized, you know, COVID is kind of, since it made its grand entrance into the human story, focusing on breathing isn't nearly as uncommon as it used to be. We We suddenly pay closer attention to the way 
we breathe. It seems like countless people on the planet have gotten to experience the way asthmatics live all the time, um, where you no longer take the simple act of breathing for granted. So, um, so this new wrinkle um, uh, in the human existence is once again testing our resilience, and we are resilient. Um, and I believe, uh, believe it or not, um, that has a ton to do with this morning's study. We're in our sixth week of uh, of the study of the Apostles' Creed. Um, as kind of a kickoff to a year that we're calling Core Strengths, um, where we're just leaning into some of the fundamental elements of the faith. Um, not because, you know, we all need a refresher course um, of what it means to be a believer in Jesus, but because the more we talk about these issues, the more I'm convinced that the foundational issues really are what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It's not just that we have to go back and, and kind of, you know, take a a continuing ed class. It's like, this is what it's all about. This is the whole thing. Um, We can sometimes make it really intricate and complicated, but in truth, following Jesus pretty much comes down to going all in on a handful of really basic realities. Um, And as we said over and over again, it isn't just like believing two and two is four, um, which is, you know, a true statement and worth believing. If you don't believe two and two is four, we should talk um, because it, it is. That's a true statement and should be believed. Um, But believing in Jesus is more like putting 100% of your trust and dependence on the death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and reign of Jesus um, in such a way that it utterly changes the way you interact with yourself, with God, with others, and with your role on the earth. Um, And the reason that faith um, can really come down to something so seemingly simple is because of Article 3 of the Apostles' Creed, which reads like this. I believe in the Holy Spirit the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, and the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Just before, so nobody gets tripped up, that word Catholic was there long before there was a Roman Catholic Church. It just means universal. Um, So it was kind of a little bit of a power move for the Roman Catholic Church to call themselves the Catholic Church. They were basically going, we are the universal church. Like, we're the church. Um, But that word was there long before that. So don't... That's a lowercase c Catholic. Uh, some modern writers of the creed say, you know, like the, the whole church or the, um, the entire church or whatever. But, um, but don't trip up on that. That doesn't mean like I believe in the Roman Catholic Church. It just believes I believe in uh, the whole church, not broken up by denominations, but everybody that's a believer in Jesus is part of the church. Now, before we dive into any more of the details uh, about the Holy Spirit, um, and what makes uh, kind of that person of the Godhead unique. <coughs> Let's talk for a minute um, about the structure of Article 3 um, of the Creed, because doing so will kind of serve as an outline of what we're going to study next week, um, so it'll give you a little idea. Um, but people have a tendency to read Article 3 of the Creed like it's kind of the honorable mentions of the Creed. Like you've got, I believe in God, I believe in Jesus, then I believe in this whole other list of things. Like this kind of smaller list of honorable mention um, things. And although the entire list is important, um, and, we, and we'll dig into this pretty heavy next week uh, in our final week of the series, this is not actually a list of things to believe in. This is not like a list of things you know, that kind of come after believing in God. We've talked on every article of the Creed so far of how the Creed stresses in all three persons of the Godhead, of the Trinity, and how it doesn't really try to define their actual essence um, of any of the persons of the Godhead. How do you define God? Like it's you, we have no context um, to de- to define the, the 
the, what God is made of or, or the true essence of God, but rather it, it identifies God by articulating um, his relationship, how he moves in relationship, because that's the best um, kind of context we can get, and the function, what the role of each member of the Godhead. God is identified as relating like a father, like in talking about the way this being relates um, that kind of paternal relationship. And my son and I talked about this all week, that weird blend of fear and love. Um, anybody who's, who, you know, has even a decent relationship with their father gets that, that weird, like uh, nobody I love and respect more also scared to death. He can whip my butt. Like there's no doubt. Um, like, and that weird, uh, when, when the, when the, Writers of Scripture were trying to come up with kind of a relational context for God. They could come up with no better word picture than that that paternal relationship. And so they they said God relates like a father. Um, he he's the he's the father. Um, and and his function was creator. So the creed opens up with I believe in uh, in God, Father Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth. That his function is to create. Um, Jesus relates uniquely as the son of both God and man, um, that his sonship is utterly unique because he's fully God, son of God. He's also, Mary was his mom. He's fully human. And that, that the, the way he relates to both God as a father and, and Mary as a mother uh, makes him utterly unique as, as both God and man. And his function is savior. Uh, by his death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and reign, he saves us. So, um, so he, he's not the creator. Father is the creator. The father is not the savior. The son is the savior. And well, the Holy Spirit is offered to us the same way. We'll talk about kind of the relational aspect of the Holy Spirit today, but this list of things that follows the statement, I credo, I believe in the Holy Spirit are not distinct things that we're encouraged to believe in. They are the very function of the Holy Spirit. These are the things that cannot exist without the Holy Spirit. So to, to the Father creates, the Son saves, and the Holy Spirit is responsible for the creation, empowering, and movement of the church, the bond between believers, the application of forgiveness, and our resurrection in entire life. That is the job, the function of the Holy Spirit. Um, these things um, aren't independent things to believe in. On the contrary, believing in these things is what it means to believe in the Holy Spirit. And I would venture to say, you don't believe in the Holy Spirit if you don't believe these things. They come together. Um, and we'll unpack that way more thoroughly next week. Um, so make sure you come back. Uh, that's a plug right there. Um, but this week we're going to talk about the, the relational aspect of the Holy Spirit. Um, and to do that, we're going to um, need to peek ahead uh, to the Nicene Creed just a little bit. Um, and before we do that, <coughs> let's look at the language just a little the Bible is an interesting text linguistically. It's, uh, it's a little complicated because the majority of the Old Testament is written in Hebrew by people living Hebrew lives. So there's, they speak Hebrew, they, they live in Hebrew, and they wrote in Hebrew. Um, and those writings start as early as 1500 B.C., basically when writing was created. So, um, which is a fun little thing that writing was created in Egypt. And just about the time writing was being created, like created in some kind of uh, alphabet form, um, God sends Moses in to learn and be trained by Egyptians. And so he comes out, one of the rare people on the planet who knows how to write, um, and immediately starts writing scripture. It's kind of a cool little 
twist on the story. But um, but around so the writing of scripture starts happening in Hebrew around 1500, 1200. It all depends on how you count backwards. Um, and uh, and those writings. Um, you know, follow through the Old Testament in Hebrew. Then about 600 BC, the Israelites went into captivity in Babylon. They were conquered, taken into Babylon, um, and they started speaking early forms of Aramaic. And so when, when they came out of, of captivity, it was a, a unique moment. Um, Ezra was the very first Bible translator. He is now reading a scripture that's in Hebrew, and he's talking to a group of people that speak Aramaic. Um, and so there was a unique moment in history where no longer did the common people speak the text um, uh, that, that the Bible was written in. And so for the very first time, translation had to happen, um, you know, into a different language. Uh, and, and they compiled these scriptures that were Hebrew, the rabbis, while they were um, in captivity. And, uh, and yeah, so 70 years later, when they came out, you've got people speaking Aramaic scripture. In Hebrew, and they continue to speak Aramaic on through when the control over Israel changed hands several times. They even got their freedom back for a little while, and then the Greeks took them over. And uh, and so now Jesus's generation speaks Aramaic. Jesus spoke Aramaic. He would have been trained in Hebrew. The rabbis and the kind of educated class were trained in Hebrew, but they spoke their everyday language was Aramaic. So now you have a people living in Aramaic. Um, and we have their stories, like we have their stories of their Aramaic lives studying a Hebrew text and quoting a Hebrew text was a little different. And by the time the people who lived those stories, this is where it gets even weirder, decided to write them down, the church had moved north. Brad, I'm no longer on my notes, sorry. The church had moved north um, and into Greek-speaking areas. And so the people who wrote the Bible wrote it in Greek. And so now you have people telling a story about Aramaics speaking people, reading a Hebrew text, and they're writing it in Greek. And so we've got multiple language changes going on here. Um, so the Old Testament is lived and written in Hebrew. The New Testament is lived in Aramaic, quoting and studying Hebrew. And by the time the New Testament is written, it's written about people living Aramaic lives, studying Hebrew in Greek. So you can see how weird. All this to say... Well, first, let me say this. Um, <laughs> we don't realize how blessed uh, we are that thousands of really diligent scholars have spent so much time with the oldest available source documents, every possible translation since, to bring us our beautiful English Bibles. Never take that for granted. That's a huge blessing that we have access um, to the Scripture. Um, and let's be honest, if you have trouble... Um, <clears throat> or as much trouble as the Bible gets for moving from translation to translation. You guys ever heard the old telephone thing? Like, if you play a game of telephone, it's a whole different message by the time it gets around to it. That's like a big criticism. Um, not only is this not a game of telephone. I mean, how many of you can can say the Pledge of Allegiance still? Like, it's different than telephone. It's not like you're hearing something immediately passing on. They're spending so much time with this that it's not just playing telephone. It's like, if I told you... If I told you, you know, any of you grown-ups, uh, the Pledge of Allegiance, and you pass it on and pass it on and pass it on, it would probably be the Pledge of Allegiance when it came back to me, because we've all said it so many times. And so that's what the text being translated is like. It's not a game of telephone. These are people who respect this text more than any other text on the planet. They don't just pass it on lightly. But the other thing is, um, I don't know if you've ever taken a higher criticism <laughs> 
seminary class. Uh, but it's, uh, when they pull up the contradictions in the text between translations, it is the most nitpicky. Like we're talking about a single tiny word here, the tense of a word there, you know, they, and I mean, don't you think out of the, uh, what is it? I wrote it down. Um, the 438 different languages of the Bible has been translated into 88 different English translations that have happened just in the last hundred years. Um, don't you think if God didn't look after his word and there was glaring problems, scholars would have found it and they'd be screaming them from the rooftops? I mean, the this is a miraculous book that that with all the ancient texts we have and all the the newer translations we have, nobody can find enough flaws in it to like... Like, even when you go to the classes where they're talking about the flaws, I mean, they're nitpicking down to the, to the tiny nitty gritties. Like, this is a, it's an incredible miracle. Over 3,500 years of text. Um, and that should tell us just really how amazing this book is. Back on track. But the main reason <laughs> I bring up the difference between the Old Testament Hebrew, the Aramaic Jesus spoke, and the Greek that the New Testament was written in is because there are often times in the, in the Old and New Testament, when it's difficult to match up language, like it's, it's a little weird. Um, love, for instance, we talk about love all the time, the four different words for love in the New Testament. And we talk about how important agape love is um, and that, that love that's not just loving somebody because they're worthy of love, but choosing to love them and a love of the will, love that acts on your behalf. We talk about how important um, agape is. That's a Greek word. There's no equivalent in the Old Testament. The, old, the Hebrew did not have nearly the nuanced language for love that, that the Greek did. And so when we talk about love, agape, we always have to talk about New Testament um, because there's a difference in the language. So when you read love in the Old Testament, you don't really know which love it is. We assume if it's God, like we see that we see the results of agape love in the Old Testament. We see God being faithful even when Israel's unfaithful. And so we call that agape because that's what agape looks like, you know, in the Greek, but, but you can't really do it in language. Like, uh, because the, the Hebrew just did not have the, the nuance for words that Greek did. Um, in my opinion, that's what makes the language for the Holy Spirit in both the Old Testament and New Testament fascinating and important. Um, especially considering the way we tend to talk about the Holy Spirit today, because no matter where you go in the Bible, um, from beginning to end, the word uh, for the Holy Spirit in whatever language it's in is the word breath. The word breath. Ruach in the Old Testament. The Ruach of God. The breath of God. Most of the times the word is translated in the Old Testament. It's breath. Like there are times when it says, you know, he breathed his last Ruach. He breathed his last breath. Um, so the word is just the generic Word for breath, unless you attach it to God. The breath of God is different than just breath, but it's always breath. And when you get into the New Testament, um, the uh, the writers, you know, caught the metaphor that the Old Testament writers were using. Um, and so they chose the Greek equivalent, pneuma. Uh, that's where we get our word pneumonia from. It, it means breath in the Greek. Every time we hear the Spirit of God... Um, and it starts in the very beginning, back in Genesis. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the face of the deep. Um, and the ruach of God, the breath of God, was hovering over the surface. You can't get very far into the Scripture, two verses in, and the ruach of God is already there, the breath, the Spirit of God. 
The writers in Genesis 1 and all the writers of the Old Testament followed suit. Choosing the word breath or wind uh, in speaking of the Holy Spirit. And this is uh, more than just kind of an ancient metaphor because the New Testament authors picked it up. They chose pneuma, meaning breath or wind. They found the perfect equivalent <coughs> between the Old Testament and the New Testament in talking about the Holy Spirit. And, and what's interesting is, you know, sometimes some of our Bibles say Holy Ghost. Um, that's just because those translators, the Greek word is exactly the same whether you read Holy Spirit or Holy Ghost. Just those translators were German. And the German word for spirit is Geist. And so when it got translated to English, they more naturally uh, made it ghost instead of spirit. But the Greek word is still pneuma, um, still the same. Uh, and the reason I labor the words the, whole, the Bible uses to speak of the Holy Spirit um, is because the very name of the person, of the, the third person of the Godhead, indicates the relational essence of the Spirit of God. Because you can't have breath if you don't have a breather. You don't have breath if there's not someone breathing. The Holy Spirit does not and cannot exist unilaterally. In fact, when the writers of the Nicene Creed expounded on the, on the, the articles of the Apostles' Creed, here's what they said about the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. You cannot have breath if there's not a breather. The Holy Spirit is the very breath, the very life-giving essence of the Father and the Son. Um, and I have no intention of, of, or ability, honestly, to actually explain how all that works. Um, I, I don't even try to explain the intricate details of the Trinity, but... Um, and I don't really feel obligated um, to fully understand it either because, as we've said several times, the earliest believers were content to just know that the Holy Spirit was the very breath of God. They didn't try to explain it. They didn't try to break it down into metaphors. It was like an egg. You've got all these parts. Like They didn't do that. They were just like, I believe in the breath of God. I believe in the Spirit of God. Um, distinct from the Father and Son, but proceeding from both. I don't get it, but there it is. Um, and honestly, if the Spirit of God, the breath of God, um, uh, is what uh, makes the, the time we live in truly unique. In the book of Israel, speaking of the restoration that was to come in Jesus, said this, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. Your filth will be washed away. You will no longer worship idols. I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. And I will put my spirit in you and that, uh, so that you will follow my decrees and be careful to obey my regulations. So way back in the prophets, God was already telling his people what to expect. There will come a day. So it's no wonder when, when Jesus was coming to the end of his ministry, his life on earth, he began to prepare his disciples for exactly what the prophets told him. Here's what he said. Uh, I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate who will never leave you. He is the Holy Spirit who leads you into all truth. The world cannot receive him because it isn't looking for him and doesn't recognize him. But you know him because he lives with you now and later will be in you. Uh, then a few verses later, Jesus says this. I'm telling you these things now uh, while I'm still with you. But when the Father sends the Advocate as His uh, representative, that is the Holy Spirit, He will teach you everything and will remind you of everything I have told you. Uh, and, and later in this same conversation, 
kind of between Jesus and his followers, Jesus adds this statement about the Holy Spirit that really sends us in the direction we want to go today. Yes, I'm telling you these things now so that when they happen, you will remember my warning. I tell you, I didn't tell you earlier because I was going to be with you a while longer. But now I'm going away to the one who sent me and not uh, and not one of you is asking where I'm going. Instead, you grieve because of what I've told you. But in fact, it is best for you that I go away. Because if I don't, the advocate won't come. And if I do go away, then I will send him to you. Now, this is where it starts to get fun. Um, I don't pretend to understand all the inner workings of the Godhead, like I said, and why God um, does what he does or doesn't do what he, what he doesn't do. I don't fully understand why Jesus says the Holy Spirit can't come if I don't go. I don't really understand all that. I don't try to. But I do want to unpack this a little bit. Um, Jesus says his leaving is to our benefit uh, because the Holy Spirit will come in, in his absence. And that is a net improvement is the way Jesus says. If, no, 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 no. This is better. It's better that I go so the Holy Spirit can come. Um, and I think this is worth unpacking a little bit um, because many of us have an issue with that statement. With, with the fact that Jesus rose from the dead, um, like, why not go on tour and show everybody? Like, this whole, like, um, going to the Father thing is frustrating because uh, it feels like our world could use a little Jesus right now, doesn't it? Like, doesn't it feel like, how many of us sit around going, oh, Lord, come back quickly. Like, this, this is getting a mess down here. Um, you know, it feels like we could, we could stand to have some Jesus healing the sick, feeding the hungry, you know, challenging bad thinking, raising the dead when needed, and all the other things that he did while he was on earth. We need a little bit of that. And so, so it doesn't make sense to us that, that Jesus would, would go away. Uh, but here's the problem with that. Um, when Jesus was on earth 2,000 years ago, he was not omnipresent. He was God and man. So he's, he's living the life of a man and had all the restraints of a man. That means he could only be in one place at one time like every other human. So, so relatively speaking, Jesus was only able to speak to and bless and heal and impact a really, really small percentage of the population. According to scholars, if Jesus um, could have directly impacted every single person in the entire Palestine area, he still would have only um, had the opportunity to impact at most 0.17% of the population. So 99.83% of the population would have gone completely unreached. But let's take that one step further. And I, I admit we have to use our imaginations here just a little bit, some good old-fashioned logic. Um, but let's just say Jesus stayed on earth and still um, kind of was confined to a human body um, that could only be in one place at one time. Uh, I mean, think about this. When, when Jesus was alive on earth, there were times when people were trying to get to Jesus and talk to him and couldn't because the crush of people was pressed in too much. They couldn't, they couldn't get to Jesus. We got the one story of the lady fighting through a crowd so she could touch the hem of his garment. And, and he's like, who touched me? And his disciples are like, what are you talking about? We're being crushed here. How can you ask who touched me? Like, so now imagine you want to talk to Jesus, this, this now risen, incredibly famous Jesus. Um, what, what do you think it would be like to try to get to him to speak to him? Like, what would that be like? You make an appointment? Like, what would the line be like? Like, it'd be like being at the DMV, I think. Like, like, how long do I have to wait here? This is crazy. Now, we get to track in the book of Acts, the, the movement of the church 
in the region of Judea, up into uh, up into Samaria, via the evangelist Philip, um, up through Asia Minor, eventually over into Europe. Now, let's just imagine Jesus stayed. The same Jesus who gathered huge crowds of people in the countryside wherever he went, when he was just like an itinerant rabbi traveling around teaching. Let's imagine word gets out that this same Jesus has risen from the dead. And he's in Jerusalem or near Jerusalem out in the countryside. Who on earth leaves Jesus to go spread the gospel elsewhere? Like who walks away from, I mean, if anything, you go, okay, Jesus, what are you going to do? Do something. I'm watching. And Jesus is like, what are you going to do? And you go, I'm going to sit here and watch what you're going to do because you're awesome. Like everywhere you go, you do cool things and I'm just here to, to participate and be a part of it. Like who who walks away from Jesus to go spread the gospel? If ever you have the opportunity to listen to me preach or go listen to Jesus preach, go listen to Jesus preach. I mean, don't like who who on earth goes and does anything if Jesus is here? In fact, that's a trick question because I'm going to be over there listening to Jesus preach. And this is where we start to, to kind of tiptoe back into the function or the role of the Holy Spirit. And it's very hard not to go there because that's, that's the, the essence of the Holy Spirit is His function. But the Holy Spirit offers us something that Jesus, the Son of God, simply could not offer. Because not until Jesus is, for lack of a better word, out of the way, is the church put in position to actually become the church. And to move and to spread and to say, this is now my mission. This is what I am called to do. And I'm empowered to do it by the Holy Spirit. If Jesus does not leave, that does not happen. I don't believe in a million years those disciples walk away from Jesus um, if he's not gone. And this is because um, of who the Holy Spirit is relationally. The, the fact that the church can, can become the church and move um, like the church is because of who the Holy Spirit is relationally. Because the Holy Spirit is the very breath of God, the person of the Godhead who, as the Nicene Creed says, proceeds from the Father and the Son as ephemeral as breath and yet also just as real and tangible and life-giving as breath. And take it from an asthmatic, as, as little as you might think about breath, if it's not there, you have real problems immediately. And the big question is, why does this matter? I mean, it's kind of fun to imagine what life would have been like if Jesus hadn't ascended to the Father. Um, and maybe we begin to see the wisdom of Jesus' ascension a little better um, than we have in the past. But, but why does it really matter to us? I mean, call it God, call it Jesus, call it the Holy Spirit, whatever. If there's only one God, then why is it so important to spend a week isolating the third person of the Godhead and discussing what makes the Holy Spirit unique? And here's why I think this is so important to declare. Right after we say we credo the Father, we believe and trust in and rely on the Father, we credo the Son, we rely on, depend on, have full confidence. I think it's just important to say that, that we rely on, depend on, have full confidence in the Holy Spirit uh, and all that He does on the earth. And the reason I think this is so important is because for you and for me, the Holy Spirit is the person of the Godhead who is present and available to us on earth right here and now. And I think that means something. Let me explain why that means something. I have never shaken Jesus' hand. I've never um, looked into his eyes. I've never heard his 
voice sing a psalm. The man Jesus lived at a certain point in history, died on a particular day in history, rose to life on a single particular day on the calendar, and he ascended to the Father in real time on a real day. And you and I were not allowed alive for any of that. But the Holy Spirit is quite a bit different. You can and should touch the Holy Spirit. You can and should hear the voice of the Holy Spirit. You can and should experience the real presence of the Holy Spirit in real time in your life. And this is where we circle back to where we, uh, we've been so many times in this series. Belief is not about mental acknowledgement of facts. If it was, if believing in Jesus is about believing in the historical reality of Jesus' existence and even acknowledging kind of the miraculous characters of that life in history, then God sending the Holy Spirit as the helper in Jesus' absence would be unnecessary. Because you can learn about Jesus the same way you learn about George Washington and Abraham Lincoln. You can learn about Jesus and the facts about Jesus the same way you learn any history. Same way you learn math. It's just facts. And you don't, you don't need, they're just historical realities. You don't need the Holy Spirit for that. But if the creed writer's choice of words, credo, was as intentional as I've been suggesting, then God is not just to be mentally acknowledged as much as to be experienced. It's a real experience we have. It's to be inhaled if you will. The Holy Spirit's presence on earth right now means that the Christian life is not a history class where we talk about stories from the past and remember the things that God did. The Holy Spirit's presence on earth right here and now means the Christian life is about living and moving and doing life with God, the, the, the God of the universe inside of us in a real and tangible way. And here's how real and important that was to the early church. After Jesus ascended to heaven, the Holy Spirit kind of crashed down on a small band of Jesus followers on the Jewish holiday of Pentecost. We may unpack that a little more next week, but the church was, was born and began to grow crazy fast immediately. It didn't take long for all the church, you know, for them to create rhythms and liturgies and, and set roots. Like they were, they were, they were rooted in Jerusalem. And honestly, the church showed no signs of spreading beyond that um, or, or, or going out and advancing new territory until persecution came. Like, they seemed to be doing just great in Jerusalem and, and nobody was, was branching out from there. In chapter 8, the book of Acts said this, but Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church. He went from house to house, dragging out both men and women to throw them into prison. But the believers uh, who were scattered preaching the good news... <laughs> about Jesus, but the believers who were scattered preached the good news about Jesus wherever they went. Philip, for example, went to a city in Samaria and told the people there about the Messiah. This word scattered is kind of unique in the Greek um, because it's an agricultural term. Uh, every other time it's used in the Bible, it's used to speak of planting seed. Like so, so when it says that they were scattered, it doesn't mean they were like they were chased and just like ran for their lives and scattered all over. It's, it means they were scattered. They were planted. Every other time you use that word, it's, it's intentional. Uh, a sower went out to scatter seed, went out to plant seed. But Philip goes up into Samaria, um, a move I don't think the leadership of the church was ready for. Um, and likely, 
<coughs> wouldn't have happened for years, I don't think. This is my personal opinion. If not for this persecution, which is something worth ruminating on. Um, so the church leadership travels to Samaria to confirm um, that what is happening really is from God. Uh, and here's how they do that. It says, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that the people of Samaria had accepted God's message, they sent Peter and John there. As soon as they arrived, they prayed for those new believers to receive the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit had not come uh, upon any of them, for they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John laid hands upon the believers, and they received the Holy Spirit. The apostles didn't just have a new doctrine to teach. They weren't just going to the Old Testament, coming up with you know new doctrines and trying to spread new doctrines. They did that. That was part of it. Like unpacking the New Testament in, this, in the Old Testament in this new way. Um, they had a great many new things to teach, but that wasn't the central focus for them. They had experienced something in the upper room that was so real, so life-altering, <coughs> that they knew that experience changed everything. It changed everything. Now, we can debate exactly what that means, and unfortunately the church is split many times over that debate um, but let's just agree on this. Something real and experiential happened that was so tangible that Peter and John felt the need to confirm that, that, that what Philip was, was experiencing with the Samaritans was real. It, it's so tangible, something so, for lack of a better word, testable, that they went up to see if, if what was going on up there really was God. And when they got there, People up there received the Holy Spirit, whatever that meant, and Peter and John were satisfied. And the gospel continued to spread in, in Samaria. Let's look at another example. When the very first Gentile got saved, a couple chapters later, Peter's completely unprepared for it. Um, and though to his credit, he does an admirable job of following the Holy Spirit despite his confusion, he winds up in the home of a Gentile. Unexpectedly. The Holy Spirit literally just says to him, follow those men and don't ask any questions. <laughs> and so Peter winds up in a Gentile's home, a place he never expected to be. And here's what he says. Uh, Peter told them, you know it's against our laws for a Jewish man to enter a Gentile home like this or to associate with you. But God has shown me that I should no longer think of anyone as impure or unclean. So I came uh, without objections as soon as I was sent for. Now, tell me why you've sent for me. Cornelius explains how God had sent an angel and told the angel told him to call for Peter. Um, Peter preaches a really short sermon to Cornelius and pretty much the second Peter gets out just enough of the gospel for somebody to believe and be saved, the Holy Spirit falls on everybody in the house the same way he did on the original 120 groups on the holiday of Pentecost. And here's how real that moment was to the early church. The church back in Jerusalem was very uncomfortable with the idea of Peter going into a Gentile's home. Um, and as Peter was kind of uh, himself giving, you know, Peter was uncomfortable too, honestly. Um, and the moment Peter gets back home, they confront him and, and they're like, hey dude, what are you doing? You went into a Gentile's house. And here's Peter's defense. As I began preaching, as I began to speak, Peter continued, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as he fell on us in the beginning. And I thought the Lord's words uh, when he said, John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And since God gave these Gentiles the same gift he gave us, when we believed in the Lord Jesus, who am I to stand in God's way? And, and at this point, there's no theological argument that that 
that this was God's plan all along. Like they unpacked that later. Like they went back in the Old Testament later and found out that this was God's plan all along. But at this point, there's, they're not even going down that road. And here's what the church leaders did when they heard Peter say that. When the others heard this, they stopped objecting and began praising God. When was the last time you saw church people do that? Get into a debate, one person makes a point, and the other one's like, great point, let's worship God. No, that doesn't happen anymore. So whatever happened, I love this, hundreds, maybe thousands of years of animosity between Jews and Samaritans, and all the cultural bias that comes with that, just washed away in an instant. Because they had received the experience of the Holy Spirit. Whatever that is. Now we've lost some of that today. We've lost something. I don't really know how to apply this today, I'll be honest. I've been in a lot of charismatic groups who, who don't believe you're truly saved unless you've been filled with the Holy Spirit, with the evidence of speaking in tongues, and for a while. Uh, both these passages of Acts seem to point in that direction. I could see their argument. But I've also seen, when I look at the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5, I know tons of people who who experience the fruits of the Spirit, the evidence of the Spirit, without the whole being filled with the Spirit and speaking in tongues thing. And so, years ago, I got confused. I was like, so you're telling me this person I know over here who has love, joy, peace, you know, the whole thing, that they're somehow less because they didn't do do this thing. And so I don't really pretend to know how that, I don't I, I can't say exactly how this is supposed to be applied, but I can say this. The new believers in, in Samaria and, and among the Gentiles had an experience with the Holy Spirit that was so real, so tangible, it served as evidence to the leadership that they were saved. I don't know what it was. I don't know what they were seeing. I don't know what was happening. But it was pretty clear in the text that it was something. That when it happened, they were like, these people were saved. I don't know. I also know that we debate all the time today exactly, you know, what you have to believe or, or whether or not you can really be saved if you believe this or if you do that. <coughs> and in some of these stories in the book of Acts, doctrine's not even discussed, which is fascinating. All they knew is they received the Holy Spirit. That's all they knew. So here's what I feel. In one of the most famous conversations, Jesus is talking to a Pharisee named Nicodemus. And Jesus says this, I tell you the truth, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. What do you mean? exclaimed Nicodemus. How can an old man uh, go back into his mother's womb and be born again? Jesus replied, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and born of the Spirit. Humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. We call this the born again experience or being born again. And what it basically means, in my opinion, is that whatever was happening in the book of Acts that, that contented the apostles that this really was a work of the Holy Spirit. And the reason I'm, I'm pretty okay with not being able to, to explain, the, to, to, to exactly define how that works is because this is the way Jesus described it. He said, the wind blows wherever it wants. Just as you can hear the wind but can't tell where it comes from or where it's going, so you can't explain how people are born in the Spirit. Remember those ABC pamphlets? Like, 
I love those. I'm not like fighting with them, but you know, they're like three easy steps to getting saved. And I'm like, that's what Jesus said. He said, you can't really tell where it's coming or where it's going. You can't really explain how people are born in the Spirit. We'd love a formula. Don't get me wrong. We all love, our, you know, if you say these words and you believe in your heart and you confess and then you're saved. Like, Jesus is like, oh, really? So I don't feel much pressure to be able to define it super clean. But I do know this. Um, I choose to take the path that the apostles, um, when Peter told them about Cornelius. If someone tells me they're born again, they've been born of the Spirit, they believe in Jesus and the Holy Spirit is inside them, that's good enough for me. Anything else is above my pay grade. I might disagree with them on a million things. And I might not be comfortable with them, you know, teaching some of that to my kids or teaching, you know, like that does not mean I agree with everything they say and do and that I, that, I, that, 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 that I don't get frustrated with the things they teach. But I don't feel called to be the gatekeeper. Peter and, and, and John went up into Samaria and they were like, they have the Holy Spirit? Good enough for me. Cornelius, you know, they had a million theological questions. At that point, 1,500 years of Jewish existence where God was the Jewish God. He did Jewish things. And He said, you know, you're my people and yada, yada, yada. And all of a sudden, a Gentile, somebody totally outside that, wants to believe in Jesus. They had a million theological arguments. And they were like, Born again? Good enough for me. I'd much rather be on the early apostle side and just say, hey, I don't get it, but I also don't argue with God. Because listen, what does this have to do with us? Right here, this morning, 2023, while we're studying the Apostles' Creed. What exactly does it mean to credo, to rely on, depend on, trust in the Holy Spirit? Way back in the prophets, God said this. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. I will put my spirit in you. In you. And Jesus, when talking about the same thing, he said, uh, you know the Holy Spirit because he lives with you now. And later, I think speaking of the day of Pentecost, he will be in you. The reason I think it's so significant that the writers of Scripture use the word breath when talking about the Holy Spirit is because we cannot sit in a room full of... You can sit, sorry, in a room full of air and not have breath inside you. And if you don't have breath inside you, you will not live. And this is why I say the very name of the Holy Spirit is relational because breath is different from air. For there to be breath, there has to be a breather. Breath is the air that gets inside of you and gives life. Breath means there's a breather who is actually breathing. So what does it mean to credo the Holy Spirit? I think the, this article of the creed, more than any other, it becomes clear that, that Christianity is not a worldview. It's not a philosophy. It's not even a theology as much as it pains me to say it. It's life. It's spiritual life. It's born again life. Something experienced where, where you know that you are different 
because the Holy Spirit dwells inside you. It's like moving from suffocating because you can't get enough air to all of a sudden breathing again and feeling the change that that has on your entire body. When I got sick two weeks ago, like the very first day I could, I felt like I was breathing fairly normal. I was coughing a lot, but but as soon as I stood up, I could feel in my fingertips that I was having problems. And I stuck my O2 thing on and I was like, oh, 89, that's great. You know it everywhere when breath is not in there. And the Holy Spirit is not an idea. It's not a concept. It's not a worldview. The Holy Spirit is a presence that lives inside of us. And like breath, that should bring life to every part of us. It should change things. The way Jesus said it is, you must be born again. So how do we respond to this? I joked around at the beginning of the message about how smart it was for an asthmatic to marry another asthmatic. Um, And that's not really altogether true. Esther had severe asthma her entire life until the summer before we got married. Um, She'd been hospitalized multiple times as a child. She was used as a guinea pig for all kinds of experimental asthma meds. Um, That was held out of a lot of childhood experiences because her breathing was always such a challenge and never went anywhere without that trusty inhaler. Um, but at 19 years old, she went to a healing crusade, honestly, to critique it. Like, um, you might even say to kind of spy on it because we thought it was kind of hokey. And uh, uh, we were super skeptical. Um, some of our friends were kind of going that route, and we were super cautious. And so I couldn't go outside to work, so I gave her a whole list of buzzwords to look out for. And, uh, and like... She was going to take notes. We were going to come home and pick it all apart and get into the scripture and find all the problems with this thing. In the middle of the prayer part of the service, the, the preacher pointed in Esther's general vicinity and said, someone in this section is being healed of asthma. Take a deep breath. And the, the people who were, who were with Esther looked over at her and... <laughs> Shoot, I don't know where that came from. Um, she took a really deep breath. She didn't feel anything change. Um, she didn't fall down or any dramatic stuff. She just took a deep breath. And it was like two months before she would even mention anybody that something might have changed. Because she's, she's very slow. And, and, uh, or, to, or to even accept it for herself that something had changed. But that two months was the longest time she'd gone since she was four without an inhaler. She didn't take a single puff of anything for two months. Finally, she told people, I think God might have healed me. And 30 years later, she's still never needed an inhaler and has never had any breathing problems. When you don't get enough breath and then you suddenly experience it again, it changes everything. Our faith should be the same way. When we put our faith in Jesus, when we believe in the one whom the Father sent, the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of us like air, like breathing, and we come alive. And that should change things. That should make us different. It should, it should be like the difference between not getting air and then suddenly breathing again. So the way I would love to respond to this message um, is to spend this morning as we gather around the table um, and, and maybe even spend this week trying to remain acutely aware of the presence of the Holy Spirit. God is not an idea or a concept. 
He's a living God who came to dwell in us in the person of the Holy Spirit. And we can be and need to be aware of that presence. So if you've never put your faith in Jesus, I invite or invited the Holy Spirit to, to give you new life. Do that today. I invite you to do that today. If you aren't sure how that works, you can talk to me afterwards. I'll share my thoughts. But even if you're already born again, spend time this week. Maybe pray and ask the Holy Spirit to make you aware of His presence. Because it's important. This isn't just ideas we're supposed to agree with. This is life we're supposed to live. And you cannot live that life without the Holy Spirit. The ladies have been reading through the Old Testament and uh, just finished up Leviticus. And one of the main points is, is, is the, the crazy effort God went through to be able to live amongst his people. Like he built this special tent and, and created all these protections and, and, and all this elaborate system. So also he could live among his people. Like that's the main point of the whole thing. That God's so desperately, like, we tend to look at the law like God wanted to control his people. No, he desperately, he's a holy God who desperately wanted to live with his people. And so he was creating paths to holiness so that he could be, you know, amongst his people. And it's crazy to think about how huge and powerful the sacrifice of Jesus was. That a God who had to do all that just to be in the same camp with his people is now willing to come and live on the inside of us. That's how massive the change Jesus' death and resurrection brought. That, that the, the very God who, who, who tried so hard to create a way to just be in the vicinity of his people is now willing to live inside of our hearts. In the book of Acts, the, the presence of the Holy Spirit was so real and palpable that the, the apostles could see it in other people. I think it's perfectly fair for us to ask God to, to make us acutely aware of His presence. God, let Your presence be real to me. We need it. I mean, think about this. I'm off track again. and I'm about done. I'm wrapping up. For the majority, the, the, the idea of us reading our Bibles, we've talked about this in small group a little bit. The idea of us reading our Bibles every day is pretty much brand new. That's a brand new thing in the grand scope of things. For the first 1,500 years of the church, uh, there was very few copies, for one, and the average person didn't speak the language the Scripture was written in, for two. So that's why the hymns were so important. That's why, that's why songs were so important. That's how you got your theology. That's why there's so much theology in it. Most people didn't read their theology. They sung it. Then, once they finally started printing the Bible, putting it in the common language, it was another 300 years before literacy caught up at all. People were mostly illiterate till a couple hundred years ago. That's brand new. So the idea of just your average Christian being able to open up a Bible in his morning quiet time is super new. Like that, in the grand scheme of the last 2,000 years, crazy new. So how did all those people live with faith in Jesus with, with no scripture in their hand? They have the Holy Spirit. You couldn't have done that without the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the very life of God living in us. We cannot do it without it. It's not something we just learn. It's not something we study like a textbook. This is our very life. And I think we need to stay 
acutely aware of it.